Marcus Marcus controls the power and wealth of a vast military and religious empire. Yet one horrific crime threatens to destroy everything in his world. Addled by drugs and grief, Marcus Marcus begins a trans-dimensional journey that will ultimately force him to confront a dark and devastating truth. Chapter 44 Things in the Fog As the ground became steeper, I struggled to walk upright. A terrible sense of fatigue and horror was soaking into me, making me as heavy and misshapen as woolen garments on the corpse of a drowned sailor. A sudden knock against my head stopped me short. I sat back on my heels and carefully stretched my arms forward. A tree, I gasped, when my hands touched the damp bark. Somewhere in the pool of fog behind me, my words were repeated by a voice as thin and cruel as razor wire. A tree, he says, a tree. Terrified, I grabbed onto the tree with shaking hands. Something grazed my leg. Suppressing a scream, I leapt up the bank. Behind me, stones clattered and something grunted. I turned to face my attacker, only to see a shadow slipping back into the fog like some large and foul amphibian returning to its rank and weed-clogged habitat. I was free of the fog, but not yet of the chilly fear it had roused in me. There I stood, shivering and staring down into the faintly glowing greyness that filled the hollow, looking and listening for hints of the beasts and beings lurking there. Below me, the thick, moist mass glowed dull and ugly, yet my fear gradually mutated into a growing sense of curiosity. This is the realm of the great liar, the full regent Melchorisha, I reminded myself as I looked on the fog. Nothing should be taken for granted. Was the fog's threat real or imaginary? An illusion to scare me away from the path I should take? And what of the suggestion that Numa's soul was trapped somewhere in Drishika, and the awful prediction of Captain Ero that I alone could find her and free her, yet by doing so would ensure her final capture. As I considered these thoughts, the fog began to change, as if, in response to my fears, it sought to lighten my mood, to distract me from my darkest worries. The fog's ugly glow slowly softened and lightened until it gleamed before me with a pearl-like liquid luminosity. Mesmerised, I bent down to examine the swirling contrasts of light and shade that subtly moved and evolved 
and bound me ever tighter in a sensation of joy and wonder. Soon it seemed as if I was standing on the edge of some deep and dusk-touched ocean. Shadows moved, but they no longer seemed the silhouettes of fouled things, but rather the dark forms curved and stretched with a lithesome grace. One such night-black shape passed directly in front of me, and I made out the profile of a woman's face with a thick mass of hair floating from the top of her head. The shadow twisted, and I glimpsed the shape of the woman's breast and the roundness of her hip, beyond which I saw not legs, but instead the silhouette of a great fish tail. Even as my mouth opened in shock and wonder, more shadows swam into view, till ten, twenty, Thirty or more mermaids, twisted and curled in the soft light, one moment so entwined that they were nothing more than a writhing ball of blackness like eels in a net. Then, in an instant, they separated, and I could discern the form of each perfectly, the stretch of a belly here, the loose tangle of hair there, and everywhere those massive tails, three times the length of each maid's torso. Insensible of any threat, I bent down and made ready to dive in. But as I leaned forward, something gently tugged at my right hand. Irritated, I turned around and saw the red ribbon snagged on a small outgrowth on the tree. In that instant, I understood the terrible and imminent danger I was in. I untangled the ribbon and ran as fast as I could from that hollow and all its lies and seductions. An awful screeching arose from the dell, but I fought the urge to look back. Even one glimpse and I would have been caught utterly, hooked by the awe and terror of whatever monstrous beings were behind me. I did not stop running, even when the ground began to rise sharply, and my struggling, thumping thighs and lungs were stabbed with pain. As long as I discerned, even faintly, the hideous, frustrated howls emanating from the foggy hollow, I kept moving up the hill. For hours on end, I stumbled and ran, and only when the dust gave way to black and silent night did I slow my pace to a jog and then a painful walk. Finally, I stopped, overcome by fatigue and a sense of utter wretchedness. Here was I, master of the house of Sajin, stranded without clothing, food or water, bereft of friends and allies, the muscles and joints of my body racked with the pain of my flight. My only thought had been to make sure that the soul of my long-dead wife was not trapped in Melchorisha's realm. But beyond that, I had made no consideration as to how to find Numa's soul, and, if it was here, how I was to free it 
without becoming myself prey to any beast that sought me. I sat with my arms around my knees, shivering and close to tears, when I thought I heard whispers from a little further up the hill. I was alert at once to the possibility that here at last were Mel Carisha's hunters, but I had no strength to flee. For a moment I even considered giving myself over to the whisperers in the hope that at least they would give me drink and food before they executed me. It was a pleasant fantasy. I could even taste the food and wine on my tongue, but a fantasy I quickly shook off. Instead, I began to crawl in the direction of the voices, determined to investigate, dreading the worst, but hoping that maybe these would be friendly natives. After ten minutes or so, I still could see no one. I guessed that they were on a plateau somewhere above me. Soon enough, I could make out the voices more clearly. There were at least two men and two women up there, but they spoke not of hunting, but of being hunted. We cannot rest. We will be caught and slaughtered. Don't talk of it. When we get through the fence, we can help the dead with our prayers. If we get through, the thorns are said to be sharp, and long as butcher's knives. Which is why we will need all our strength. Two sleep, two keep watch, and our sleep each, that's all. Damn it, they could catch us whether we rest or not. It seemed to me that here at last were the allies I needed. I hurried up the slope, wondering how best to announce myself without startling the escapees into a violent response. The ground's incline became steeper, so much so that I was half crawling, half climbing, clinging on to roots and jutting rocks and clumps of wet grass. Soon, though, I was within a few feet of the little group. I could hear them breathe and the tread of their feet as they paced back and forth in agitated discussion. I reached up with my fingertips and found that the slope had flattened out. I began to pull myself up, preparing to reveal myself. Why I hesitated at that moment, I cannot rightly say. Perhaps caution or doubt. Perhaps I was just taking a pause to figure out how to announce myself to that group of frightened survivors. Or maybe at some deep primal level, I sensed the arrival of the foul hunters. But hesitate I did, and I give thanks to all the divinities for my hesitation. For suddenly, a horrific howling and screeching erupted above me, punctuated by screams, awful, desperate, terror-drenched screams. <laughs>
thanks for listening to this latest episode of Marcus Marcus and the Hurting Heart. If you enjoyed the story, please tell your friends, your family and all your ancient enemies. Stay tuned and mind, stay safe. Wash your hands, keep your distance, wear those masks. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee. For details, check in the episode notes.